You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Spy Museum. Nice day to be in here, actually. Very nice outside. Rainy day is a great day for spies, dogs, and newlyweds, I suppose. Okay. Um, I am absolutely delighted this morning to introduce a, a uh, former colleague, friend, and uh, respected now historian and author, uh, Dr. Thomas Bogart. Uh, Thomas was with the museum as our historian for six years. Uh, he wrote a book when he was here, uh, which was Spies of the Kaiser, German Operations in Great Britain during the First World War years, showing that both the Germans and the British had exaggerated their successes, which was quite successful, and I think very much respected by uh, intelligence historians. So I said, Thomas, what are you going to do next? And he said, well, I'm doing some research on the Zimmerman telegram. Well, I couldn't think of anything that there would be anything new that you could say about than the Zimmerman telegram. Thomas is a historian, so I clearly underestimated uh, the person I was talking to. Thomas has done some original research in both Germany, Great Britain, and here. And yes, there's something new to say about the Zimmerman telegram, and Thomas has done it uh, to his great credit. So, Thomas, congratulations on... on, uh, adding to what we understand about is sort of one of those pivotal intelligence benchmarks, Venona and Enigma and the Zimmerman telegram. So you have added to our understanding of that. Thomas has a PhD from Oxford. Uh, he uh, is currently at the U.S. Army's Center of History, senior historian at the center in Fort McNair. Uh, I remember, Thomas, when you came here, you knew World War I cold. But we had long talks about the American Civil War, which was relatively new to you, as I recall. So I recommend Lincoln, if you want to see a really good show. Um, So uh, one thing that Thomas has asked me to add, and this goes with working for the government, doesn't it, Thomas? That the views expressed are entirely his, not those of the Department of Defense. I didn't think you were speaking for the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. Thomas, it is great pleasure that I welcome you back to the museum. And again, congratulations on your, jo- on your book, The Zimmerman Telegram. Okay. 
Well, thank you very much, Peter. I, I didn't know you were so skeptical about my research in the Zimmerman Tiger. You never told me that. So I'm, glad, I'm glad you didn't mention it at the time, because otherwise the book may have never been written. Um, um, so thank you for this generous introduction. Thank you all for coming. It's really nice to see so many familiar faces here. And uh, I know those of you who know me a little better uh, remember that I've talked about the Zimmerman Telegram for the last 10 years, so this is it, I promise. This is <laughs> closing that chapter and moving on. Um, but anyway, let's talk about the Zimmerman Telegram, Intelligence, Diplomacy, and America's Entry into World War I. And we'll start at the very beginning, almost 100 years ago, August 1914, uh, when World War I broke out in Europe. If you take a look at the map of the world at the time, um, this is a contemporary map, you'll find an evident um, um, imbalance of power between the allies here colored in gray on the one hand and the Germans and their allies, they're often referred to as the central powers, here colored in black. Um, the allies control about two-thirds of the landmass of the, land of the world. Um, the Germans and their allies really only a small strip of land um, in uh, Central Europe, a few pockets in Africa and Asia. Uh, those were German colonies that were quickly conquered by the Allies at the beginning of the war. So this imbalance from the German perspective um, uh, obviously posed some challenges, but it also offered some opportunities. The challenges are self-evident. The Allies throughout the war were able to draw on more resources. They were always able to field more soldiers, generally able to um, equip them better. But there were some opportunities in this, um, in this map, if you like, for the Germans. Much of the Allied territory that you see was actually colonized territory. Some of the Allies, Allied countries were also autocracies, such as Russia. So even at this point in time, throughout the world, you had these incipient, revolutionary, anti-colonial, um, nationalist movements. And the Germans, from very early on in the war, tried to capitalize on that. They always tried to mobilize proxies around the world to divert Allied attention away from Europe, um, um, in order to strengthen the, the German war effort in, uh, on the Western Front and the Eastern Front. Um, this developed into a, what I would call a global covert action program, and it was directed mostly by the German Foreign Office under the Foreign Secretary Arthur Zimmermann. And to give you a better idea of this program, let me just walk you through some of the major operations that the Germans launched. In um, September 1914, uh, uh, late 1914, the German military attaché here in Washington, D.C., Incidentally, just a few blocks from here, um, German embassy was on Massachusetts Avenue at the time, uh, started recruiting German-Americans. These people were equipped with explosive sabotage material, and they were supposed to be sent across the border into Canada to blow up uh, railways there. The, um, Canada was a British colony at the time, and the goal was to stop the flow of ammunition material from uh, North America to, um, to Great Britain. Around the same time, the Germans um, convinced one of their allies, the um, uh, Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, who was also the caliph, uh, spiritual ruler of the Muslim world, to declare a jihad against the infidels. Uh, this operation was um, aimed at the um, uh, North African colonies of Britain, France, and, um, and Italy. For two years, the Germans worked very closely with Hindu nationalists in India, India, of course, being the most important British colony um, in an effort to um, stir up trouble there. Then in 1916, the Germans actively supported an insurrection in Ireland. Um, Easter Sunday, this uh, insurrection was, was bloodily suppressed. Ireland was part of the British Empire at the time. But Ireland did become independent shortly after the war, and this event is often credited as, as a major stepping stone uh, for Irish independence. And so the Germans had their hands um, in that event too. And then, of course, the most, by far, most consequential um, 
uh, covert operation of, of all was the German su support for the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. As many of you will know, there were Russian revolutionaries exiled in Switzerland. The Germans um, made a pact with these people, uh, one of them was Vladimir Lenin. Uh, they were smuggled into Russia. Um, the rest is history. The revolution succeeded. Russia dropped out of the war, and Germany was able to divert um, one million troops from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. Um, so just, just look at these operations and, and keep this in mind as we um, look at the um, political situation in early 1917. Um, in early 1917, the last remaining major neutral power was the United States. Uh, it was not in the war yet, but it was leaning very heavily towards the Allies, and there were a number of reasons for that. Uh, one was um, Germany's um, waging of unrestricted submarine warfare, which threatened American lives um, and, and also trade between America and the Allies. Um, so America wasn't in the war yet, um, but it was very, leaning very heavily towards the Allies. Um, as the Germans anticipated America's entry into the war, and given all these covert operations that they had launched before, it was really only logical that they would try to do the same thing, that is, trying to find a proxy in the Western Hemisphere that they could use to divert American attention away from Europe um, so that when the United States actually did enter the war, uh, they wouldn't be able to send troops to Europe. The um, country that the Germans eventually settled on, as a potential proxy, if you like, was Mexico. Um, so in January, 19, in January 1917, the Germans drafted an alliance proposal um, to Mexico, and this would, of course, then eventually become the famous Zimmerman telegram. Um, and this alliance was to be made to Mexico in case the United States entered the war. Uh, the Germans would promise the Mexicans uh, material support, financial support, and then also most notoriously um, uh, support for the return of uh, Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Those were states that were lost um, uh, to Mexico, um, by Mexico, in um, uh, 100 years earlier in the uh, Mexican-American War. Um, if you look at this, if you look at this proposal, and um, uh, as Peter mentioned, you know much has been written about the Zimmerman telegram, and in the literature you'll often find it um, dismissed as something that was harebrained, it was stupid, it wouldn't work, it was outlandish, and it may have been all that. But it made sense from the German perspective if you look at the way how they looked at the world and how they always tried to find these proxies and mobilize them against the Allies. In a way, this was, this was a very logical and consistent thing for the, for the Germans to do, regardless of whether it would, um, it would work or not. Um, all right, so this um, alliance proposal is drafted in January 1917. Now the Germans face a very practical problem. So you have this alliance proposal, but how do you get it to Mexico? How do you get it to the German envoy there so he can actually make this alliance proposal to the Mexican government once Mexico is in the war? Um, transatlantic communication at the time of World War I was um, done mostly by, by, by submarine cables. Most major European powers had submarine cables that they used to communicate with their embassies in the Western Hemisphere, and the Germans had that too. The problem was the British had uh, found those cables at the beginning of the war and had cut them, had destroyed them. So communication was a, a big problem um, for the German government. In the case of the Zimmermann telegram, the Germans come up with a pretty clever solution. Um, they enlist the help of the U.S. State Department um, of, all, of all places. Um, remember, the United States is still neutral. So the Germans approach the um, American State Department and say, hey, you know, we have um, 
we have some instructions for our German ambassador in Washington, and this is about peace negotiations, and uh, could you help us get this um, to Washington? And the U.S. State Department obliges. They um, had done this before. This was not, this was not the first time. Um, and so the Germans encode the Zimmerman, this alliance proposal, which then becomes a Zimmerman telegram. Um, encoding, again, was normal procedure, so the Americans couldn't read it. It was given to the American embassy in Berlin. From there, it was forwarded to the American embassy in Copenhagen. From there to London. Uh, from London to the State Department in Washington, D.C., the State Department in Washington, D.C. gives it to the German embassy. They decode it and code it in different code, and then they send it on to Mexico City to the German envoy there. The whole process takes about, um, takes about a week. And um, so you have the ironic situation that essentially an anti-American alliance proposal is being conveyed on American cables um, to, um, to Washington and then to, to Mexico City. So that was a pretty clever idea. Unfortunately, what the Germans, neither the Germans nor the um, uh, Americans knew was that the British at the time um, had a very capable um, code-breaking operation going under British naval intelligence. Uh, the director was uh, Captain William Reginald Hall, and this organization is uh, often referred to as Room 40. You may have heard that name after the physical location where it was located. Um, room 40 keep, kept tabs on all communications going into and coming out of it's called Room 40. Room 40 is, um, it was located in um, the old Admiralty Building in, in London, and, uh, you know, those rooms had numbers, and then Room 40 happened to be empty at the time, so they crammed the code breakers in there, and then it was just referred to as Room 40. Um, they intercepted and decrypted pretty much every message that was going into and coming out of the American Embassy in London. And so the Zimmerman telegram really is intercepted by them as a matter of routine. Um, one day after it passes through London, uh, Hall uh, has a copy of the telegram. He has a partial decrypt. The British can't decrypt the whole thing. The code is too complicated, but they have enough to understand what this is all about. And Hall, of course, realizes immediately this is a, potentially a great propaganda tool. If he gave that to the Americans, you know, they might be outraged and, and, and join the war right at once. He can't give it to the Americans at this point. Why not? What's that? Well, the Americans would wonder where this is actually coming from, exactly. Um, and he couldn't tell them, hey, I just plucked that from your, from your embassy. Um, so he, he can't give it to the Americans at this point. He has to come up. If he wants to give this to the Americans, he has to find a credible alternative that, you know, what he can tell the Americans where this is coming from. And he does. Um, he understands from the content of the telegram that the final destination is not Washington, but that the embassy in Washington is supposed to forward that to Mexico. He also knows from past experience that the uh, Germans typically used um, a commercial company to do this, the Western Union Telegraph Company. Um, um, well, it was one of the few ways how you could communicate between Washington and Mexico City at the time. And the British happened to have a source or a spy in the Mexican Telegraph Office. Um, so this person is instructed to simply buy up copies of all incoming messages from, from Washington around that time, um, this is done. Um, the, these copies are then forwarded to London, decrypted, and the, the Zimmerman telegram happens to be amongst those. Because it was in an older code, um, this time the British are also able to decrypt the whole thing. So now, about five weeks after the telegram was sent, Hall has all the pieces. He has a complete decrypt of the telegram, and he has a credible explanation for the Americans if he wants to give that to them um, um, as a propaganda coup. 
And this is what is done. On February 23rd, um, the British officially hand a copy of the Zimmerman telegram to the American embassy in London. They tell them we got this in Mexico, which was true, more or less. Um, And uh, they tell you, you can do whatever you want with that. Um, So you have a five-week time lag. And again, if you look at the literature on the the telegram, there's a whole range of explanations why Hall hesitated so long to give this to the Americans. Uh, my, My opinion on this is his overriding concern was he was very, very afraid the Americans might find out that he was keeping tabs on their embassy. Um, And this is a point I'll come back to at the end of the lecture. Okay. So clearly, Hall gave the telegram to the Americans um, with an ulterior motive in mind. Uh, He wanted wanted to force American intervention. The question is, did did this actually happen? If you look at the... um, American administration, I think it did have a certain effect. Um, President Woodrow Wilson at this point in time was still hoping he could bring about a negotiated peace, maybe mediation between the warring parties. He really did not want to go into this war. Once he sees the Zimmerman telegram, he understands the Germans are really not interested in negotiated peace. In fact, they're making preparations for war against the United States. And as a result of that, he, he stops his mediation efforts. He takes a series of steps that eventually take the United States into the war in April 1917. So it's too simplistic to say the Zimmerman telegram pushed the U.S. into the war, but I think you can make a case that it accelerated America's entry into the war by by maybe a few weeks. Um, And, you know, that is not negligible. Um, The more complicated question is to what extent did the telegram um, have an impact on the American public? Again, if you look at the literature, everybody seems to agree that uh, this was the one event, like Pearl Harbor, that galvanized Americans and, um, uh, you know, made intervention popular. Um, the problem is, of course, at the time of World War I, how do you gauge public opinion? You don't have opinion polls in the sense that you have them today. But I did find one abundant source uh, that was very useful, and those were contemporary newspapers. So I looked at a large sample of contemporary newspapers and, and, and looked at how do they cover the Zimmerman telegram? How do they look at the war before the Zimmerman telegram? How do they look at the war after the Zimmerman telegram? What impact did anything change through the publication of the Zimmerman telegram? Um, the administration gave... Um, this telegram to the press, to the Associated Press, on March 1st, 1917. It was published in, in, in virtually every major American newspaper. This is a copy of the New York Times. But most, most front pages would have looked like that on March 1917. You can see, it made inf- indeed, it made headline news. Um, I've pulled some headlines from some of the major papers at the time. And uh, if you look at those, it, it seems to confirm that, yes, it did indeed um, galvanize the American public for war. The problem is that the interventionist press, when you look at these same newspapers um, a month earlier, they would already have advocated war. In other words, the papers that were for war maybe were reinforced in their belief that going to war was the right thing, but this is very different from saying, hey, the Zimmerman telegram turned, turned the public around. And in fact, there was a large segment of the press that was anti-war, that was isolationist, especially on the West Coast. The San Francisco Chronicle is a big paper, Midwest of the South. And uh, what I found interesting is that those papers don't change their stance at all. They are against the war before the Zimmerman Telegram is published, and they are against the war after the Zimmerman Telegram is published. Um, So clearly here it didn't have much of an impact. They report on the Zimmerman Telegram too, but they largely dismiss it as something that was ridiculous, that was outlandish, that can't be taken seriously, Um, something that just was too bizarre um, um, to to cause America to enter the war. Um, If we look at... 
we look at some of the contemporary cartoons that were published at the time, I found six of those. Um, in, my, in my opinion, that, that reinforces the point that many Americans looked at this with great interest, but not necessarily in, in enraged or, or, or saw that as the one cause for going to war. Um, these were all cartoons that appeared in the press shortly after the Zimmerman telegram was, was published. Um, and if you look at those, this is the set, the first set of three, I think the common theme, well, first of all, they're, they're cartoons. They're not realistic depictions. Um, so there's already an element of comedy in there, at least it seems to me. Um, if you look at them individually, for instance, the one in the middle, which also served as a template for the book cover uh, called Pi, was published by the Atlanta Journal um, on uh, March 2nd, 1917. You have these three characters, the Germany, Mexico, and then Uncle Sam in the background, and the German Kaiser offers a plate of pie in the shape of New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas to um, Mexico and says, all you got to do um, is beat the stuffing out of that old guy and the pie is yours. Um, now, if you play that scenario out, let's say the Mexican accepts this pie and then tries to beat the stuffing out of that um, towering Uncle Sam, just by the way these figures are proportioned, it's clear who would win this contest. It's not Mexico, it would be the United States. Um, so I think this cartoon and others too are, are commentary on on the um, uh, improbability of the Zimmerman telegram and perhaps also on the German insincerity in making this offer, but it doesn't depict it as a threat. And I think that's, a, that's sort of a theme that you find in all of these um, cartoons. Um, this set is a little more serious, sinister, but again, it's a cartoonish depiction. If you look at the one, for instance, in the middle, again, the Kaiser is making this offer to Mexico, join with Germany, and you get a bit of United States. I think the wrong grammar already injects an element of humor there. Um, and then you have the title, Some Promise. So again, it kind of insinuates, this is, you can't take this seriously. Uh, this is something to laugh at. Um, the Germans are so stupid, but it's not something that we have to be afraid of. Um, it would have been possible to depict the Zimmerman telegram in a very different way. If you look at, if you look at American propaganda, um, government-issued propaganda at the time of the First World War, um, it's very, very different in tone, and it's much more serious. The two... The two events that American propagandists um, harped on uh, throughout the war was German unrestricted submarine warfare, um, again, which, which had, had killed American civilians uh, even before America entered the war, and then the German invasion of Belgium in, um, in September 1914. Belgium was a neutral country, and there were allegations that the German troops had committed atrocities there. If you look at those two um, depictions here, uh, they're very different from from uh, the Zimmerman telegram um, cartoons that I just showed you. On the left hand, um, that was published um, shortly after the sinking of Lusitania. Lusitania was a British liner that carried American passengers, was sunk by, by a German submarine, and over 100 Americans died. Anybody who looked at that, at that poster would have, would have made that connection to the Lusitania. And what does it show? Well, you know, a, a dead woman, a mother clutching a child. Um, there's certainly no humor in there. I think it's a pretty straightforward depiction um, as, as, as the Germans and murderers of women and children. And then on the right-hand side, um, remember Belgium. Uh, again, it's a very straightforward depiction. There's a German soldier uh, with, uh, with a young girl, uh, clearly de depicted as an arsonist, and I think the implication also as a, as a rapist here. Again, it's not, it's, there's, no, there's no element of humor there. It's, it's a pretty realistic depiction for, for this time period. Um, American propagandists never used the Zimmerman telegram in this way, which I find notable. In fact, reporting on the Zimmerman telegram stopped shortly after it was published. It's never really resurrected until after the war, which seems to me to indicate that really it didn't have 
it had a shallow impact on American public opinion. Um, um, it did certainly not cause Americans to embrace war. If it had an impact, I would say it deepened the controversy over war. It convinced those people who wanted to go to war anyway um, that they should do so, but it failed to, to, um, um, to galvanize those who were against the war. Um, and again, this is very different from something like Pearl Harbor or even 9-11, where I think there really was never any, any discussion that this was wrong, it needs to be responded to. Um, what does this mean? Well, when the United States does enter the war in April 1917, I think it, it enters the war much more divided than is commonly acknowledged, certainly much more divided than France, Britain, or Germany did in, uh, in August 1914. Uh, these fissures within the American public are, are glossed over during the war, but they come back after the war. If you look at the United States after the war, it's one of only two countries that does not sign the Peace Treaty of Versailles, um, it's seen as too vindictive, um, signs a separate peace treaty, um, and the country also then retreats into isolationism for two decades. And that's pretty significant, again, very different from the post-World War II period. Um, the Zimmerman telegram did not cause all that, but I think it exacerbated that. And if you look at it, you can understand what a tortured way the United States had going into this war. Um, before I open it up, for questions, we're at the Spy Museum here, so I thought I'd just, just say a few words about the significance of the Zimmerman telegram on, on uh, the history of intelligence, um, and we can um, discuss that in more depth later. Um, first of all, I think the Zimmerman telegram, until World War I, intelligence gathering was really understood mostly as espionage, meaning you have a spy in a, a, a foreign country who steals information and then somehow brings that back, um, and, uh, and, and that was intelligence gathering. The Zimmerman telegram was really the breakthrough of signals intelligence, uh, interception of communication, which potentially can yield as much or much more information than, um, than espionage on a much larger scale. And uh, in World War II, of course, that was repeated, um, Bletchley Park, uh, on a much bigger scale and, and really had war-winning implications against the Axis powers. So that is, that is one important contribution of the Zimmerman telegram to the history of intelligence. The second one is, I think it throws a very interesting light on the so-called special Anglo-American relationship and intelligence. Uh, it is often said that the American and the British intelligence community have this exceptionally close relationship, and I think that's, that's true, it's no secret. Um, if you look at the Zimmerman telegram, you can see how this really goes back to World War I. Hall worked very closely with, with uh, the intelligence personnel at the American embassy, and this was all very well. But the Zimmerman telegram also shows that this special relationship came with a catch. Um, I told you earlier that Hall's primary concern was that the Americans would learn how he had obtained the Zimmerman telegram. Um, why? Well, I mean, that would, would have caused a ruckus at the time. Um, but apparently he also wanted to keep that channel of information open, which begs the question, well, if they were intercepting American messages in 1917, what happened afterwards? Um, and that is a very interesting question. I found several documents in the British archives, intercepts, American intercepts from 1918, which indicates they were intercepting while the two countries were allied. And I think there's also pretty strong evidence that this sort of thing was going on in the interwar period, um, that Bletchley Park did not only listen in on the Axis, but also on the Americans. And one historian has claimed it was going on for much of the Cold War. Uh, so it's an interesting special relationship um, um, that, that works on more than, it's more special than on more than one level. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to point out is that 
I'm sure you're all aware of the fabulous new Bond exhibit we have here at the Spy Museum. And as uh, you all know, there would be no James Bond without the Zimmerman telegram. It's common knowledge. I'm just going to repeat that here. Um, Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, was a naval intelligence officer who worked for naval intelligence in World War II, so he wasn't actively involved in the Zimmerman telegram. But of course, at that point, the Zimmerman telegram had become legend um, in British intelligence and was routinely being taught to um, uh, incoming uh, newly trained uh, intelligence officers. And um, he looked at that, and uh, when he created his character, James Bond, he was looking for a code name uh, uh, for this person. And if you look at the code that the Germans used on the Berlin-Washington leg of the Zimmerman telegram, the Germans called that 0075. And apparently Fleming saw that and thought, okay, this is too long, but if I take the five out, then this is a pretty catchy, then this is a pretty catchy code name for my from my James Bond um, agent. So, and this is how the Zimmerman Telegram really created James Bond. Uh, <laughs> on this note, I'll leave it. Um, and I understand we have time for questions. And uh, Peter volunteered sure. to, to, and if you would wait for the mic, that would be yeah. great. Is that true about 07? No, I you made created that. that. No, I made it that. <laughs> I mean, I think, you, you know, you can take the man out of the spy museum, but you can't take the spy museum out of the man. So we ended up with that anecdote. We have a mic up there? Okay, here we have one question right here. Why don't you stay here, Thomas, let me get out of the way. Um, you didn't say anything about what Mexico did, one. And two, one of the t- headlines mentioned Japan as well. Yeah. That's always a challenge in giving a compressed talk, you know, about something that you've worked on for so many years. Um, these are very good questions. Um, Mexico... Before the Mexicans were informed of this alliance office offer, it was already published in the American press. Um, so it had become null and void. Well, you know, that was unanticipated, of course. The interesting question is, of course, what would have happened if it had not been revealed in the, in the American press? And, uh, you know, it's been said, and I would agree, that probably this would have not come to anything. This alliance proposal made sense from the German perspective, um, but what was in it for the Mexicans? The Mexicans couldn't seriously hope to defeat the Americans. It probably would have provoked an American invasion, um, and so it probably would have just not you know, occurred at all. Japan is a more interesting question. There was another impetus why the Germans made this alliance proposal. From very, Japan was allied with Britain and France, um, and the Germans from very early on in the war tried to break Japan away from this alliance. Now, there was no German embassy in Tokyo because the countries were technically at war, um, so they had always tried, you know, in Sweden or other places, tried to get in touch with Japanese officials. And the, the Zimmerman telegram, in a way, was just another way of trying to get the Jap- Japanese to negotiate. If, you know, there was a Japanese embassy in Mexico City, um, you know, maybe with the mediation efforts of Mexico, that could have worked, the Germans thought. Um, so that was the thinking behind that. Again, it was probably not very realistic, um, but, but that's why... Japan was, was in there. You could even say that was the original idea, and then it sort of got lost along the way. Okay, about right here. Uh, yes, this idea of this offer to Mexico, was this strictly an idea of Arthur Zimmerman, or did he confer with Hindenburg and Ludendorff or the Kaiser or anybody? Yeah, these are very good questions. Uh, the... Um, Zimmerman signed off on it. He, it was not his idea. That was a, the, the, the original proposal was made by, 
by one of his uh, subordinates, name is Martha von Chemnitz, and, and um, Chemnitz, Chemnitz, I think, initially really saw that as a bridge to Japan. He said, okay, let's, you know, through Mexico, maybe we can, uh, you know, reignite these, these negotiations with Japan. Uh, Zimmerman at this time was very, very busy. Again, they were anticipating America's entry into the war. There was a very brief meeting at the foreign office. Chemnitz makes this proposal and then makes Zimmerman essentially, yeah, yeah sure, well, go ahead with it and uh, signed off on it. Uh, it was just a very chaotic time um, in Germany. Um, he did not consult with Hindenburg, Ludendorff, or the Chancellor or the Kaiser before the uh, telegram was sent, but I think that was not, that was no scheming on Zimmerman's part. It was just things were so chaotic. He did tell them shortly afterwards, um, after the telegram was sent and before it was published in the American press. So he didn't, he did that of his own volition. Um, uh, and, and, you know, they, they were fine with that. But again, at, at this point, the big question for the Germans was unrestricted submarine warfare and America's entry into the war. This was very much a sideshow for them until it was published in the American press. And, of course, they didn't anticipate that. Right here. Um, how, much, how, much, how much did you owe to uh, this book, the Zoom Telegram by Barbara Tuckman? Who is that? How much did you add to that? No, I mean, of course, I'm, 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 I'm well aware of Barbara Tuckman's book. And uh, what, I, what I always tell people is uh, that was a great book at the time that came out, I think, in the early 1950s. Yes, and she, uh, to her credit, you know, this is a great story, and she was the first to really pull all the strands together. Um, since Tuckman published her book, you know, we have a lot more source material. For instance, she could not access any of the British or American intelligence sources, so the, the, how the Zimmerman telegram was sent, how it was intercepted, Hall's rationale, all that was not available to her. And Hall, after the war, you know, he, he put out some, some pretty big red herrings because he did not want people to find out, because even at that time, in the 1920s and 30s, while Hall was talking to the press, the British were probably still intercepting American messages. So he wanted to, to well, I mean, you know, he's a good spy master. He wanted to divert as much as possible attention away from that. Another thing that um, Tuckman uh, didn't look at were, were the German records. So I think she um, didn't really fully appreciate how, you know, the German rationale behind this telegram and, and, and who was involved and why it was sent um, but again, you know, I mean, I think this was a great book at the time, and if it gets anybody to read about World War I, that's just fine with me. Uh, I believe that Wilson campaigned in 16 for saying he would keep us out of the war, and yet you say that almost the Zimmerman telegram really didn't make a difference, maybe just accelerated by a few weeks, so it was inevitable that we were going into this war even without the Zimmerman uh, telegram. Is that what you're saying? despite Wilson's campaign pledges? And well, that's a great hypothetical question. I mean, we don't know. I mean, I, I, think, I think it is clear that, that the, the Germany's declaration of unrestricted submarine warfare, that was a pretty big step. I mean, basically the Germans were thinking, we're just going to send anything on the North Atlantic. We don't care if there's an American ship or an Argentine ship or, you know, whatever. And uh, um, after they did that, American trade with, with uh, Europe, which was significant, basically died. I mean, it was a pretty huge infringement on American sovereignty. So any president, whoever was president, would have had to deal with that. And again, you have Wilson, but then you have tons of, I mean, his whole administration was for, was for war. Um, the problem, I think, that, that you have in the United States, you have, you have two camps. You have one that is very stridently pro-interventionist, and you have one that is very, very pro-isolationist. So whichever Wilson 
whichever way Wilson went, he would have had the support of one group and he would have offended another. I mean, there are people who say if Roosevelt had won the elections in 1912, then the United States probably would have entered much earlier. If Hughes had won the elections in 1916, maybe America would have stayed out altogether. I mean, all you can really do is look at Wilson's policy. I think he tried to do the right thing at the right time. Um, you know, he was a very conscientious man, sometimes a little moralistic, but but I think at the time he really tried to do what was right. And uh, um, at that point, from his perspective, there was very little alternative um, than, than going to war. I think he would have lost credibility. Um, and yes, you, you're right, he made that slogan, he was the man who kept us out of the war in 1916, but we know how that goes with you know, there are other slogans I could mention that were subsequently broken. So, you know, I, I, I don't, um, I wouldn't hold it against him. Okay, one all the way over here. Laura, thank you. Okay. At the time that the uh, British Naval Intelligence decoded the telegram, what was the capability of the U.S. codebreakers? Did they ever suspect either before entry into the war or during the war that British naval intelligence had that capability, and what was the capability uh, as of the end of the war and shortly thereafter as to the U.S. codebreakers? Yeah, that's um, another great question. I think you're right on the money here. Um, until the United States entered the war, the, there are some um, intelligence agencies that the Army and the Navy and the, the State Department have these you know, really small units, um, but nothing comparable to the Germans um, or the British. Um, but that doesn't mean they weren't suspicious. If you read the memoirs of Herbert Yardley, who was in charge of uh, code cipher security, the State Department before the war, and then he became head of uh, American military, MI8, the, um, the, the code and cipher department of the American army during the war. Um, he, and I think is very credible, he, from the very beginning of the war, he keeps telling the state, look at your codes, this is not secure, this is not secure. Uh, and uh, at some point, one of his superiors said, well, yeah, we could change them, but, you know, they would probably break them again. Um, in 1918, Yardley is a liaison, he's the official liaison officer uh, for American, uh, for MI8 um, with Hall. So he knows Hall quite well, and he said he was so concerned to send sensitive information Back to um, back to Washington D.C. on uh, cables that he usually, when he had something really important, he gave that he sent that by diplomatic pouch. So so the evidence was there, um, but I think it, it just wasn't it just wasn't on anybody's radar. And then also keep in mind the State Department was, I could say, blatantly pro-Allied. And I think their main concern really was getting the United States into the war. If some of these people had asked some hard questions at the time, I think you didn't have to go very far to find how this telegram. Uh, you know, was intercepted, but I think it just wasn't, that was not the point at that point. They, they just, it wasn't important to them. I think the main concern was, you know, work with the British, give them everything you have uh, so we can get the United States into the war, and, and once that was accomplished, the issue was, was largely forgotten. Okay, Thomas, Dr. Thomas Bogart, thank you very, very thank much you. for a wonderful presentation. Terrific. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.